all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're talking with Jacob Wucher, who is a graduate student studying urban planning and policy at UCLA, uh, and also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. How are you doing today, Jacob? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming by. So let's start off with the hot-button topic at the moment, SB 827. Uh, do you want to give us a rundown real quick on, AP, on 827? Sure. So SB 827 is a bill, a statewide bill proposed by State Senator Scott Weiner. He is from up in San Francisco. Um, it's a YIMBY bill, YIMBY standing for Yes in My Backyard. Basically, their theory of how to fix the housing crisis is just, I mean, it's not just, it's a little more nuanced than I'm going to say, but it's basically we need to develop much more, let the private market develop much more. And the problem, the main problem is restrictive land use regulations, restrictive zoning that's been wielded by rich homeowners to keep out poor people of color and, you know, keep their property values up. And in in, in part, that is true. Like, that's a major phenomenon um, that they identify, but that's really not the whole story. Um, And they have way too much faith in the market, and we'll get to that. SB 827 basically is a transit-oriented development proposal. So any area within, it's like a half mile near, the specifics are, there are a couple different specifics, but basically near transit stops, near mass transit stops, it upzones areas, meaning it overrides local zoning regulations saying like, you know, you can only build a single family home here, you can only build um, a duplex here, and it says you can build, there are a couple levels, like one is 50 feet or one is 80 feet or 75 feet, basically allowing for taller and denser development. Um, So the idea is if we clear out the zoning regulations that have restricted the supply of housing, the market will enter and supply much more housing and we'll have these great integrated cities and housing for everybody. And this is supposed to, at least in LA, pretty much blanket the city because we have a pretty robust like transit network here. Um, you've been doing some work on that. How does that map break down? Does it seem like it makes LA flatter or is it making it or keeping it segregated, keeping it kind of class segregated? Yeah, it's interesting. So. The whole proposal is framed as taking on the rich, powerful, white, homeowning class who have segregated themselves, which, again, is a real phenomenon that we do have to deal with. Like, there are areas like Brentwood, the Pacific Palisades, and Bel Air, and down in Palos Verdes that are basically all single-family homes. People there are very rich. The homes are worth millions and millions of dollars, and we absolutely should be developing um, mixed income development or, you know, 100% affordable developments, in my opinion, in those neighborhoods. SB 827 does not do that, at least in Los Angeles, certainly not. It leaves out literally the 10 richest neighborhoods in Los Angeles, and I'm defining neighborhoods as um, the LA Times, this mapping project. And you could, if you just Google LA Times mapping project, you can find all their data. Um, so it's not by census tract exactly, it's by like how they define their neighborhoods. 10 richest neighborhoods are basically completely untouched. I think the only exception is a couple parts, a small part of Brentwood would be upzoned, but that's about it. So um, actually, no, Brentwood's not even technically in the top, top 10 richest. So I think, yeah, literally 10 richest neighborhoods untouched. Bel Air, Beverly Crest, which is right next to Bel Air, Pacific Palisades, Palos Verdes Estates, Rolling Hills Estates, Manhattan Beach, um, all these extru- the, the richest, whitest homeowning neighborhoods are not touched by SB 27. Meanwhile, all the areas that are under extreme gentrification pressures, such as Crenshaw Lamert Park, um, the greater South LA, you know, South Central, like near uh, USC, which is always expanding, East LA, Boyle Heights, um, Westlake, 
Pico Union, East Hollywood, all these areas like immediately adjacent to downtown, which have been seeing rents go up like skyrocket in recent years. Oh, so Koreatown as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they are all upzoned, like yeah. pretty blanketed by this bill. And the point I try to make is that these communities are already quite dense. Like some of these areas have higher density than uh, New York City, right? So they're already dense. They're already diverse. They already have a ton of transit riders. They already are the communities that SB 827 supporters claim they want to see. The problem is they're filled with the wrong people. They're filled with people who cannot pay high rents. So SB 827 clears the way for market rate or luxury development, which will move in wealthier, whiter people who can pay higher rents, increase the profit making that happens in these sites. So I really think SB 827 is a lubricant for gentrification. So uh, now Scott Weiner, who introduced the bill and is, is the sponsor in the state uh, Senate, has gotten a lot of pressure about uh, the fact that there isn't a lot of rent control protections, that there aren't right of return protections, and he's tried to write in some amendments to the bill to sort of fix that. Is your opinion that these are like adequate fixes, or are we still, like, even if the bill passed with these amendments, we'd still be uh, gentrifying all of these places? In my personal opinion, um, and this is not yet the opinion of Democratic Socialist America because we have yet to formally deliberate on what we think of this bill post-amendments, but we will have an analysis coming out soon. In my personal opinion, this bill is still bourgeois garbage. Um, The amendments do not do anything for indirect displacement, which is the idea that like, if you put a luxury condo or luxury apartments in Boyle Heights, or at least in the part that's like closer to downtown, it's a signal to real estate speculators that this area is becoming primed for richer, whiter people, and they will all, not all of them, because not every single landlord is a disgusting, gross capitalist, but owners in that area will raise their rents, um, evict people, and more development will occur. So that's indirect displacement, which is displacement that comes from rising rents and evictions and not from the destruction of units. The amendments do nothing for this sort of indirect displacement. The amendments do have on on their face pretty good protections for... Um, the demolition of units and the demolition of rent-controlled units. Um, they have a right of return provision saying that if your unit gets um, redeveloped or demolished in the process of a development that occurs because of SBA 27's upzoning, the developer has to pay for you for something like 42 months to live in a comparable unit nearby. The thing is, in practice, uh, it's very unclear how this is going to work. Um, People who have studied these similar sorts of provisions, you know, unsurprisingly find that they don't tend to work as advertised. I, I, I was going to say, you know, it, L.A. has a vacancy rate of like one percent. Where are they going to stick these people in apartments? Because it doesn't seem like they exist. Right. That's the thing. If we're talking if we're already in a housing crisis and you're trying to find someone in, um, you know, Koreatown, a comparable unit nearby how is that going to happen? It's just, it's just not that easy. So the, the amendments on their face sound good for what they address. So the narrow area that they do address, they sound good in practice. It's unclear how they're going to work. I do want to give them a little bit of credit, though, because the amendments are a step in the right direction. But, and we can go into more detail of this later, there's still so many things about this bill that I personally would change and that a lot of low-income groups, like I, like I heard um, Cynthia, Cynthia Strathman from SAGE, Strategic Actions for a Just Economy. They're one of the 37 groups in L.A. that signed on to a letter um, to Senator Weiner regarding the unamended unamended bill when it first came out. Um, they had a really strong critique of the bill, and I, I saw her speak recently, and she was saying, look, we still, you know, we're still pretty opposed to this. We still think it's going to increase displacement, increase gentrification, increase rents. 
even without SB 827, most of those neighborhoods are still going to be under a lot of pressure for gentrification. Like historic Filipino town is looking at having a new design district put in. I was wondering if you could speak to like some of these not 827 issues. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's the thing. None of these issues, it's not as if eight, SB 827 on its own is going to cause the destruction that I'm talking about. Like this is already happening to a certain extent. Um, you see displacement on a pretty massive scale happening in neighborhoods basically that are adjacent to the west side and downtown. So you have kind of starting in the southwest, um, let's say like Inglewood is coming under a lot of gentrification pressures right now and they're fighting for rent control and it's like a huge concern and Wall Street is buying up single family homes in their neighborhoods and setting the market rate you know, higher than it would be. And, and a lot of that's probably has to do with the uh, stadium that's being developed out there because now we have two football teams for some reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The stadium is a huge contributor to that. They're also trying to build a new arena um, for the Clippers. So you have Inglewood there, and then you're moving kind of like east and north up to Crenshaw Lamert Park. They're under a ton of pressure too because the expo line, also for Inglewood, the ex- there's a new expo line coming in that basically connects both of these places to downtown and to the beach. So if you're like a rich white kid not kid, if you're a rich, rich white yuppie, um, you know, suddenly that's like a great place to live. You can, you know, it's, it's, there's, it's next to transit and it's close to Silicon Beach where your job might be. Um, so real estate speculators see that and see, okay, we can put investments in here and think that like 10 years from now, you know, this is going to be the next Echo Park or this is going to be the next Silver Lake. It'll be a hot neighborhood for white people to live in and we can make a lot more money. Um, so we can buy low while the land is still relatively cheap and rent high in the future. Um, and then you come around down to South LA, like South Central near USC has been facing these pressures for a while, coming wrapping around to East LA, like Boyle Heights. I mean, some of the most inspiring anti-gentrification activism in the country, I think, right now is happening in Boyle Heights with Defend Boyle Heights and all the groups associated with Boyle Heights um, Alliance Against Displacement, Art Washing and Displacement. Um, yeah, I mean, and then you have areas which I'm actually less familiar with personally, um, wrapping around, continuing north, like uh, Frogtown, I hear, is fighting against gentrification right now, and Los Feliz already has been. And then you also have areas like Chinatown, areas like Koreatown, Westlake, Pico Union. If it's close to downtown or the west side, it's probably getting gentrified. Yeah, and it, it seems like the, you know, there was a, a lot of these groups out in Boyle Heights were able to chalk up a win with the Mariachi Plaza thing, but that was also a long, hard fight. Like that, taking the fight to B.J. Turner wasn't a guaranteed win, it was a lot of man hours and a lot of effort. What options do neighborhoods have right now to defend themselves outside of that sort of direct action? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the BJ Turner fight was sweet. I was involved with that. We um, slept outside of his house um, in a supporting role. It was, it was really, it was a really great campaign run by Union de Vecinos and the LA Tenants Union. But yeah, like you're saying, that's that's a that's one case that we prevented. Um, and that's obviously not a viable strategy. It is a viable strategy in terms of growing the tenants movement, which I think you need these particular cases, which is why I in, like I think it's smart to focus on these. But like you're saying, you can't protect a whole community by protesting outside landlord's house. I mean, I think and <laughs> low-income tenants across the country really think that rent control um, is probably the best. Rent control and other tenant protections like just cause eviction protections mm-hmm. are probably the best way to put an immediate maybe not complete halt, but uh, drastically slow down gentrification and displacement. Um, 
I think rent control is a no-brainer policy. It would instantly protect millions of renters across the state. LA has rent control, but only on buildings pre-1978, and we cannot expand it because of this statewide law called Costa-Hawkins, which we're trying to repeal. It's going to be on the ballot in November. Um, Maybe we'll get into it a little later, because I do think it's really instructive to talk about, basically compare Costa-Hawkins repeal to SB 827, and I think it's really illuminating um, which side, not like not that you can't support both, but it, re- it really is illuminating um, where certain people choose to put their political capital mm-hmm. behind. And there, there are some protections here in California for uh, units that are rent controlled. Like there's the Ellis Act that's supposed to be there to stop you from being evicted out of a rent controlled unit. Uh, well, but they've seen a lot of abuse. So, so yeah, the Ellis Act explicitly is to allow rent control evictions. So the Ellis Act says if you own a building, you can demolish the units and evict the tenants in rent-controlled units if you're getting, like, quote-unquote, out of the rental market, which in reality means you're leaving the market for five years and you're coming back with luxury apartments or you're converting them to luxury condos. So we've oh, seen... Oh, so you can, you, you can come back and rent them. I, I was under the impression they had to become, like, condos that you were selling off. But you can still, if you wait long enough, I you think, can... Yeah, I yeah. think if you wait five years, you can come back and rent them. Um, maybe maybe I'm wrong on that, but we've seen, I think at least twenty one thousand rent control units lost in the city of Los Angeles since something like two thousand one because of the Ellis Act. Um, I mean it's really some it's really disgusting stuff. These what some developers do. And uh, before we get to Costa Hawkins, uh, let's touch a little bit on another one of the pressures that a lot of people are facing, uh, which is Airbnb and landlords kind of turning their units into permanent hotels, essentially, um, and what kind of pressures that's putting on neighborhoods. Very, very good call. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to forget about it. Um, Airbnb, I mean, it's really simple if you think about it. Airbnb takes units off the rental market and has them instead for tourists. So instead of a family or an individual who lives in L.A., works in L.A., being able to be in that unit, you have you know, someone with a lot of money from out of town coming and they want to see the city, whatever. Um, I saw a number from Lane, Los Angeles, what is it for, um, Los Angeles for a New Economy, something like that. Anyway, it's a great group that does a lot of research on this stuff. Um, They, I think it was from 2015 or maybe it was earlier, 2014, and they said 7,000 units have been taken off the market because of Airbnb, so I imagine 2018, it's much higher than that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, we're supposed to get about 10,000 units from Measure HHH, which was passed last fall and provides $1.2 billion for the construction of affordable housing. So Airbnb is basically taking off the market the equivalent an equivalent number as Measure HHH is bringing on the market, and, and you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a generous estimate, 10,000 for Measure HHH. So... But again, the the Yimbies, the Yes in My Backyard types who are sponsoring SBA 27, um, that's not at all part of their analysis. They don't think about speculation. They don't think about Airbnb as part of the problem to them. It's just zoning. I mean, it's it's a fundamentally deregulatory trickle-down approach. It's saying if we deregulate land markets and we let the capitalist real estate market do its thing, housing will be built, and even if it's all luxury, it will trickle down to all. I mean, that's literally what their argument is. They talk about this process called filtering, which is the idea that as housing gets older, um, it you know it, it, it passes from a rich family down to a poorer family, basically. 
So you mean if, if you know, my friends in Koreatown get evicted, then all they have to do is wait a decade for that department to become undesirable before it's knocked down and they're forced out again? What a deal. Right, yeah. There are so many problems with that idea. I mean, and, you know, you have research from Berkeley economists saying that this process takes, quote, this is a quote, generations to happen. Um, and it's even slower in tight housing markets like in L.A., uh, so let's talk Costa-Hawkins. So Costa-Hawkins is a 1995 bill that stops uh, rent control be- from being brought in on any buildings built after uh, 1996. Uh, it was passed in 95 and went to effect in 96. Uh, and it's kind of been the law of the land for a while. What have its effects been in California? Yeah, so Costa-Hawkins is a really awful reactionary piece of trash legislation from the neoliberal 1990s. Um, like you said, you cannot have rent control on buildings built after 1996. That's one. Number two, single-family homes cannot be covered by rent control, which is in these days especially significant because post-2008 um, you know, recession and the foreclosure crisis, a ton more people are renting, and Wall Street has been pouring billions and billions and billions of dollars into California homes. So that's number two. You can't cover single-family homes. Number three is it requires vacancy decontrol, and what that means if you're in a rent control department and you move out, the landlord can set the rate back to whatever the market allows. So if I move out of my apartment, I'm paying a thousand bucks a month. He can set it up to twenty five hundred, and then the next person who moves in pays twenty five hundred, and they're still they're still rent controlled. But which which in this case is the three and a half percent like cap on how much you can raise rent year over year. Right? Oh yeah, good call. Yeah, so that's what rent control basically does in LA and a lot of other cities. It basically ties. Rent in- allowable rent increases to inflation. So, like, your rent is not going to go up more than 3 to 5% a year. Um, Which ultimately isn't that helpful as wages have, since the 70s, lagged far behind inflation. So that's already kind of a built-in conveyor belt for evictions. Right. No, that's for sure. But it's a hell of a lot better than rents going up 50% a year or 80% a year like we're seeing in Boyle Heights or uh, 40% a year. We just saw these tenants with um, at 131 South Burlington and Westlake at a 40%, it was like 70 or 80 units, 40% rent increase across the board. That would not be allowed under, um, if, if the unit was rent controlled. And Costa Hawkins, additionally, not only can units after 1995 be covered, but if you had rent control at the time, you cannot expand rent control. So that's why LA cannot expand rent control past buildings built before 1978. But but that's also because LA had instituted its own rent control sort of ordinances. So LA was already locked out of that. Uh, so if if the petition uh, gets the 400,000 signatures, which it looks like it's well on its way to do, I've, I've gathered about 10 pages of signatures and the only people I have met that don't want to sign are the people who have a vested interest in this, like real estate developers, people who work for, for bids. Uh, but so that would just that would allow cities and municipalities to create rent control. So what does the fight look af- look like after we repeal Costa Hawkins? Good question. Okay, so let me backtrack one second. Um, sure. So Costa Hawkins repeal, getting rid of this law, has been a priority for tenant groups and low income advocacy groups across the state for like years now. And finally, there is some momentum. The housing movement is growing, and the Democrats were actually. Actually, or some Democrats actually introduced a bill. Richard Bloom from Santa Monica in the state assembly introduced a bill in January to repeal Costa Hawkins, um, but it didn't even get out of committee because two cowardly Democrats abstained from the vote. So the Democratic Party is really not comfortable challenging 
their real estate funders to do well, this. And, and I remember, uh, I, I wasn't at that hearing, but I, I knew a few people that were. The uh, the new chair of the committee did not know what the laws were. Oh, yeah. And they was... were like, hey, do you want to repeal Costa Hawkins? He's like, I don't know what that is. I should probably look uh, into it. He didn't know what the Ellis Act was. Oh, that was, the Ellis Act. Yeah, that's that right. Was, but that was embarrassing. one of those where you're like, wait, you're the chairman of this committee. Yeah. And your staff couldn't even give you like an outline. So there's a lot of political uh, momentum going the other way, it seems, in, in Sacramento right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the real estate industry is extremely powerful. I saw some stat. They, I think they said they would fund. No, actually, I don't want to miss. They said they were, you know, some millions and millions of dollars that they said already they would spend on. So anyway, so now there is a ballot measure that we are trying to get on the ballot. And it looks like it will, like you said. It, it shouldn't be a problem. So in November, there's going to be, you know, prop something prop some number um, on the ballot to repeal Costa Hawkins. Then the question, like you said, is what's going to happen next? Because repealing Costa Hawkins doesn't institute rent control anywhere. So a lot of cities right now are fighting for rent control um, within the Costa Hawkins framework. So like Inglewood, Glendale, Pasadena, um, a bunch of other places are trying to get rent control on their ballot for November. But again, like it wouldn't be for buildings past 1995. It couldn't be for single family homes, et cetera. So if we repeal Casa Hawkins, that could immediately open the floodgates for cities to expand and strengthen rent control. The question is, will they? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually got the opportunity to go to City Hall the other day with my UCLA program and talk to Councilmember Paul Coretz, and he was pretty. He seen, I, you know, I asked him if if we if they would if LA would expand rent control to cover every single household, which I I doubt will ever happen, but. He seemed pretty open to the idea, and he seemed to think that there would be momentum, but, you know, it's not as if L.A. politics is not just as much controlled by land use interests as California politics, so you would need a big push from the grassroots, I think. And it it seems like we're kind of beginning to get that, but again, California is a very, like, big and broad state. Uh, As far as passing rent control, like, if cities were able to do that, how do you think that would affect development? Like, how would that impact something like SBA 27? Yeah, that's the that's the thing you always hear, um, in response to saying advocating for rent control. You always hear people saying no, but it's going to impact. It's going to slow down development. And there, are, I think there are a couple ways to deal with this. One, most rent control proposals would exempt new construction, so by definition would not impact new development. I mean, the reason it would impact new development in theory is because um, you know, you're limiting the profits they can make, so you're limiting the, you're reducing the incentives to build, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I like, I would, I personally like to answer that by just dismissing that, basically saying, you know, first of all, there's been a lot of studies we don't really know. Like, there's been studies saying it does reduce development. There's been studies saying it doesn't. We don't, we can't be certain it does either way. But if you think of the positives of rent control, I think you will immediately see that it vastly outweighs the potential negatives. So the positives would immediately be, number one, you would protect millions of renters from sliding into homelessness. I mean, there are 1.5 million renters, renter households in California that pay over 50% of their income to their rent. These families are vulnerable to joining the ranks of the unhoused. Um, It's not that complicated. A lot of people become homeless because they can't afford their rent. I mean, homelessness has been skyrocketing. There's a Zillow study that shows that each 5% increase in rent, 2,000 people become homeless, and that's just in Los Angeles alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's no secret. Rising rents cause homelessness. If we cap rents or you know slow the increases, 
less people become homeless, number one. Number two, you will slow down gentrification and preserve the diversity of our cities. Right now, the geography of our cities is totally reversing itself. You are having white people colonizing the cores and low-income people of color are being pushed out to the suburbs or pushed out you know, to the Inland Empire. LA has lost over 100,000 black residents since the 1980s, and the Inland Empire has gained 250,000 black residents, right? Yeah, the, the, the impact of transit here in LA, especially like the Expo Line, uh, which it, it, seems, it, it seems strange because you think of the Expo Line like on either end, if you dumbbell it, it's like white people and white people downtown in Santa Monica. Uh, I lived right off of the Farmdale stop when they were building it when it opened. That neighborhood has changed so much. Uh, we were like, we got a cheap deal on a loft and we were two white guys owning a business there uh, and we kind of stuck out and now when I go back to that area a lot of stuff's been knocked down a lot of stuff's been converted a lot of the families that lived in those neighborhoods have been pushed out the houses can now go for over a million dollars absolutely I mean people are getting displaced from central cities rapidly Um, there's a great article in the LA Times I think it's called transit oriented displacement or it's something along those lines if you google transit oriented displacement LA Times you'll find it and there's some shocking numbers I mean from Koreatown from Echo Park, from Hollywood, you know, in each of these places over 10 years, like you have 13,000 Latinos being pushed out, um, replaced by white people, basically, uh, higher income, higher educated white people. So, and, and white people that generally tend to own cars or work from home, like work more white collar jobs where they're not like reliant on, on the transit that this is supposed to help boost. Totally. That's the other thing. And that's, that's also part of the issue with SPA 27 is you get these richer people who, yeah, you're like, you're saying, don't use transit as much as the low income people. Um, so rent control would slow down gentrification, not totally stop it in its tracks, but you know, almost as best as we can do, kind of, um, and preserve diversity in our cities, protect vulnerable communities who are just being ravaged right now by um, capitalist displacement. So that's number two. Number three, rent control is essentially a wealth transfer over the course of time from rich property owners to poor people who tend to be people of color who are renters. Um, so you could, one, prevent homelessness, two, stabilize communities, three, transfer billions of dollars from rich white people to lower income people who are disproportionately people of color. And you can do this instantaneously with rent control. So to me, this is going back, we were talking about this like three minutes ago, five minutes ago, whatever. The argument that um, rent control might potentially, maybe, we don't know, reduce supply is just incredibly, incredibly weak in compared to the certainty. So I, I got to ask, for like the central city, like the mid-city area around like the Expo Line and stuff, is it just a historical accident that those are black and brown neighborhoods or is that by design? Yeah, so that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the history of LA is incredibly racist, um, especially in the housing market. Wait, you mean Hollywood land? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we're so, but we elect Democrats, right? No. Um, Chavez Ravine, but I love the Dodgers. But Chavez I, Ravine, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other... Yeah, so the, the history of L.A. is built on redlining. It's built on the destruction of communities of color um, and segregation by race and class. So I'm from... I grew up in the west side of L.A., and I was reading... I forget what book... I was reading a book about um, the history of public housing in L.A., and there was a group called the Culver City for Caucasians Committee that was active um, basically throughout the 50s. And there were groups like this all over the city that were explicitly maintaining and violently maintaining racial boundaries. Um, So that is how um, the black population and the Latino population ended up in places like Crenshaw, South L.A., Boyle Heights, East L.A. Um, 
because they basically they couldn't they couldn't buy property anywhere else. I mean, and you know the, the history of cities across the country is pretty similar. Yeah. Um, and like you're saying, the irony is that now these are the areas that are close to downtown. You know, if you want like a walkable city life, these are the areas that you want to live in. So the people who we once pushed into these areas and neglected, and I, and I say, I guess we as like a white person because um, white people are super fucking guilty and we should all be aware of that. Um, and, and these are now the same areas that are targeted for gentrification. And like, it's, you know, there's this whole rent gap theory, which is gentrification is so profitable because the land there is cheap. And the land there is cheap because of decades of neglect and disinvestment and um, poverty. So you can buy cheap and you can rent high, as I was saying earlier. Um, so gentrification, we have to realize, is built on and is dependent on a history of racialized property making, property taking, displacement, banishment. I, I remember uh, when I was uh, living out in that area on Jefferson, and that was a real point of contention as to whether or not they wanted a Crenshaw line stop there. Because this had been referred to, like, I, I knew people who were like, yeah, back in the day, this was the Black Beverly Hills. And then it was gutted by the war on drugs and is finally kind of coming back up. And as soon as it begets, begins to get, like, an economic foothold, they want to put in a transit stop. And everyone there saw that as a sign of, oh, you're trying to push us out of our own neighborhood. I was wondering, though, how do we balance that? Because we do need the transit. Like, I, I don't want everyone to drive a car. That's a horrible way to get around. But how do we balance that transit need with the ability to keep neighborhoods? Totally. I mean, it's a total cash 22. Like if you're a historically poor, disinvested, neglected neighborhood and suddenly you start getting investment and you start having, you know, really nice amenities put in your neighborhood and the infrastructure gets upgraded by the city and you get nice transit lines like you're talking about, that is, you know, that might be um, improving your, I mean, it is improving your immediate neighborhood and it might be nice at the same time it's priming the area for speculative investment that is geared towards bringing in whiter, wealthier people um, and unfortunately kicking a lot of the current residents out. So it's a total, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to deal with. And that's why you need rent control. I mean, that's one reason why we need rent control because like rent control would be a huge break on these processes. And just something I want to get across if I haven't already, like rent control is the foremost demand to my knowledge, as someone who's who does a lot of work on the ground with tenant groups and pays a lot of attention to the things that come out of L.A., San Francisco, all across the state, um, tenant group, I mean, rent control is what the grassroots, what a lot of low-income people, people of color are demanding right now. Like, that is number one. The number one priority is cost of Hawkins repeal so we can expand and strengthen rent control. Um, and I can... I'll just go for it. So the whole history of urban planning, um, I'm lucky enough to receive a really great urban planning education so far from UCLA. Um, and the whole history of urban planning is white professionals thinking they know how to develop cities, um, but, oh, whoops, it happens that whatever we just did is really beneficial to all the people who own and invest in property, and um, poor people get screwed. And if we just listen for once to the people who are most impacted by the housing crisis, I think 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we will all be a lot happier with the state of things. That is why I implore, if anyone is listening to this who is a SB 827 supporter, don't take my word for it. Take the word of 37 grassroots organizations in Los Angeles who signed a letter saying they don't like this bill. And that includes some of the, like, some of the most legit grassroots 
organizers in Los Angeles, LA Community Action Network, who organized the house, the unhoused people on Skid Row, like they're incredible. Um, Act LA, uh, the Black Worker Center. I mean, all these great, really great groups. They do not want SBA 27. They want rent control. So if we just have the humility, I think, to listen for a second, we would we're, we'd all be in a lot better shape. The thing I, I find really weird about LA is it's trying to turn itself into like a tech place like San Francisco and Silicon Beach is the jobs we're bringing in don't require as many people. So we seem to be like hollowing out our own economic core. But where do you see that tension going? Like what, what do you think is going to be the industry du jour in 10 years in like Boyle Heights? Hmm, that's funny. I, for one of my classes right now, I have to write a paper on basically the question you just, you just asked. Um, I mean, you're totally right. The economic landscape of L.A. is changing. We used to be a manufacturing powerhouse. We still are in some sense, but all the, a lot of the jobs dried up in you know the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, black workers were especially affected. That's why 40% of the unhoused population is black, even though this is for the county, even though they only make up 8% of all county residents. Because, um, yeah, just the jobs left, and, of course, um, black workers were the first ones fired, last hired, first fired. You know, that's kind of how racial capitalism works. Um, I'm not sure where L.A. is going. I mean, there's a ton of money being made on property speculation. Um, a lot of money is going into L.A. real estate. L.A., there was an L.A. Times article from last year saying that L.A. was recently voted the number one place in North America um, to invest based on a survey of global real estate investors, and they had some pretty amazing quotes. Like, one of the guys is just really pumped about it. He's like, yeah, it is great because, quote, we, there's still room for rents to rise. So a lot of money is being made off of property. That means hotels, um, Airbnb. I mean, a ton of the Airbnbs are managed by not just like – it's not just like an average person renting out their spare bedroom. You know what I mean? It's, it's a corporation that owns this property to rent out as an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um like you said, Silicon Beach is becoming big. Snapchat is buying up property on the Venice Boardwalk. Though it looks like they're getting out of there. Um, That's what someone said recently. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they they're giving up the freak show. Like they displaced the yeah. Venice freak show, yeah. which was really dumb. I love that place. Yeah, I, I yeah. lived in Venice for a couple of years, <laughs> and like all those, the freak show was great, uh, and like a really nice, welcoming place. And then Snapchat bought it out, and then. Kylie Jenner said Snapchat is dumb, and that's how our economy works today. But let, let's uh, let's touch on policing because this is a, a major point. And like, it was weird when I lived along the Jefferson corridor, as it were, because it was a major corridor for prostitution and drugs. Um, it was not hard to find or see any of that activity if you really wanted to. Uh, and you saw cops every now and then, but they didn't really get involved. And then uh, a couple of years later, I moved into a house in that same neighborhood, and as things started to go up we saw a lot more cops around. Um, And I wanted to see, you know, do you think this is just a coincidence or this is something LAPD is doing on purpose? What you've identified is absolutely um, something that should never be glossed over when we talk about gentrification, and I'm glad you brought it up, which is the increase in racist policing, basically. The um, police will enter an area and enforce bullshit laws more aggressively if uh, it gets gentrified, like you're saying. I mean, because... They're, protect- they're fundamentally about protecting the property values of people who own the property. Um, so that's, that's absolutely a thing that's been shown time and time again. When neighborhoods gentrify, the police step up their presence, and black and brown youth, especially men, get targeted and sometimes killed. Um, yes. So there's some good stories on this happening in US, around USC, 
uh, this reporter who I really love in LA. I mean, I've never met her, but I love her writing. Um, Sarah Suleiman has written about it. Uh, there's an Atlantic article you can read about gentrification and policing. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, that's definitely a thing. Uh, so Jackie Lacey is apparently fatally allergic to prosecuting cops. Uh, even a, a police officer who killed someone on Venice Boardwalk, who Charlie Beck said, prosecute this guy. Her office said no. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about like how those interactions, because LAPD has also arrested more uh, unhoused individuals last year than ever, and they're making that policy. Yeah, the LAPD last year, according to analysis by the LA Times, I believe, arrested, I think it was 14,000 arrests of unhoused individuals in the last year. And and were most of those for like violent crimes or No, the vast the vast majority of them were for quality of life offenses like sleeping on the sidewalk when you're not supposed to or having property that's blocking the sidewalk or you know maybe like peeing on the street because you're they're just trying to I mean it's just these people trying to live. They're just trying to live, right? They don't have homes. It took them 6 years to get toilets out on Skid Row yeah. and there's only like 4 of them. And uh yeah, General Dogon giving Garcetti the business was was very interesting to watch but so we're not investing in any of the infrastructure that we need to take care of these people but we are investing a lot in policing and jails apparently oh absolutely so one statistic I came across and I think this might be already a little dated but it was from the Center for Popular Democracy LA spends 1.5 billion with a B billion dollars on policing each year and 65 million dollars on um, housing and community investment so we are spending far more on policing and harassing our unhoused neighbors than we are on providing them services or housing them. Um, and I just want to give a quick shout out to something we are doing in Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, called our Street Watch program, which is modeled on LA Community Action Network's program that they do on Skid Row called Cop Watch. Basically, we try to monitor the cops. We, Every time we talk to unhoused people, we hear that the cops treat them like shit. The cops are really really mean to them they don't they aren't helpful they give them tickets for things and like you don't have a home how are you supposed to deal with a ticket right i mean it's hard enough to just live and you know then you get a warrant out for your arrest and maybe you get put in jail for a couple nights and it just really screws with your whole life um and the lapd is it, i mean they're really they treat the homeless terribly yeah. and they don't help and i actually confronted dominic Choi, who is the head of LAPD homeless outreach or something like that um, and he said you know he kind of said oh it's not us it's sanitation because a lot of times you'll have the LAPD accompanying sanitation when they go to clean the streets which is a whole another issue because like they don't actually just clean the streets sometimes they just make them move their stuff and then they just move on anyways um, and I said yeah but that's not what we're hearing you know the cops just they gave them tickets you know 14,000 arrests of homelessness of homeless people um, and he gave me some BS answer like well you have to have law and order um, or, you know, or you have to sometimes you have to incentivize people to seek out the services. Uh, that, that was Beck's talking point also that like maybe the intervention of writing this person a ticket and sending them to jail is going to be what they need to like lift themselves up by their bootstraps. And it's like giving them a record, taking them out of the jobs market, putting them in a horribly stressful, traumatic situation. None of this bodes well for their future. And we know that like once you're unhoused and end up in jail, you're way more likely to go back there and to slide into that. And we don't really like the measure HHH housing that we're talking about, that's that's still years and years off. So what do you think the city has a plan for that backstop, or do you think they just plan to criminalize people for the, the next 10 years? I don't think our city has a plan. Um, I think the criminalization of our unhoused neighbors is a crime against humanity. I mean, some of the cruelest stuff um, 
in the world happens right here in LA, you know, in this liberal city, we all think we're so great because we're Democrats and because um, we didn't vote for Trump. Um, but I think we all really need to take a hard look in the mirror and look at how we treat the people who don't have homes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for, for Streetwatch, uh, you guys don't, like, intervene or anything. You guys are trying to sort of provide an objective record, try and make sure there's no really way to enforce a federal court order. But the, the police are supposed to watch out for things like documents and medication and stuff like that. Do they make any effort to do that? Sometimes. Um so, you know, it varies, but often we see them just pretty wantonly tossing out things. We had um, John Motter, a ground game comrade, uh, documented a woman who had her medication thrown out by the cops because they just they don't they don't care. They're not there to help you. They're they're there to to harass you. And ultimately, in a lot of areas in the city, they're there to get you to leave. So the Venice Boardwalk every Friday morning they come and they just they basically make all the unhoused people move their stuff, and if they have more than can fit in a 60-gallon bag, which is like a big garbage bag, they throw it out. And like I said, Snapchat bought up a lot of property there. The area is changing. It's becoming Silicon Beach. They are trying to use the cops to force unhoused people out, and it's happening on Skid Row, too. I mean, Skid Row is downtown adjacent. You know, it's, it's in downtown. Um, this, These are buildings that could be extremely profitable if the area gets you know quote unquote cleaned up basically if like the homeless people leave so i forgot i forget the details but someone from la can was just telling me that there's a proposed community plan down in skid row where they're closing all these shelters and all these service centers that have for decades housed and served the homeless um and they want to build yup you know yuppie housing there mm-hmm. so the police are criminalizing them and ultimately it's a tool to further gentrify to increase profit making on the land um, and to extend the frontiers of capitalist colonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last point I kind of want to touch on, um, going a little bit farther afield, is uh, Prop 13. There's uh, the Make It Fair Act that is getting signatures to try and go on the ballot to deal with Prop 13 on a commercial level, but it also has some really insidious effects on the residential level. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Prop 13 basically, I mean, without getting into all the details, it really limits the amount of money we can collect from property taxes. Um, and if while I'm here, I'll just give my whole spiel. So, yeah. like, we need to redistribute land and resources if we're ever going to solve the housing crisis. If we're ever going to house everyone with dignity, we have 58 billionaires and 58,000 homeless people, and we need to take the money from the rich and use it to build houses for the poor, right? It's like pr- It's kind of that simple in a way. What's not simple is getting that money. Because if you tax incomes, people will just move out of L.A. If you tax, you know, corporations, they'll just do their business elsewhere or they'll like they'll have their lawyers set it up so they don't get taxed. So I think the really the way to do it is you have to tax the land. Like if we want to get money to spend on the on on people who need it, we need to redistribute money and we need to tax the land. Land in L.A., land in San Francisco is incredibly valuable. Like there are billions, 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 maybe even trillions of dollars in that land. Um because of Prop 13, we're very limited in how we can do that. Um, and honestly, I've, I've, I've asked a lot of my professors about this and the exact legal framework of what you can and can't do. Like you could put parcel taxes on, but then they're always different. Anyway, so it's not totally clear. But until Prop 13 is repealed, um, we are severely restricted in the amount of revenue we can raise. Once Prop 13 re- is repealed, which may, you know, maybe there will be enough momentum to do it soon. Um, 
we could redistribute some money. Yeah. Well, and it, it's weird whenever I talk Prop 13 with people is they understand it's a problem, but they always go back to, oh, but we need it to protect the single-family homeowner. Uh, and it seems like we really need to move away from that model here in Southern California. It eats up a lot of resources. It takes up a lot of land. It's incredibly inefficient. Single-family homes, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So just real quick, the reason people say about Prop 13 is because it limits property tax. Increase. So like if, you, if you buy your home in 1980, your property taxes are going to be based on the valuation in 1980. And until you until the home changes hands, the valuation that you pay property taxes on doesn't increase. So yeah. the argument is like, you know, if you're an elderly person on a fixed income um, and your property taxes kept going up and up and up and up, you'd be screwed and you, you'd have no way to pay it and you'd have to, like, move. Uh, that, that may be true in some cases, but like you're saying, I think it's a lot of BS. Well, it, and the, the profile of who owns a home has changed so drastically since then. Like, the, the Howard Jarvis Tax Center may have been right back in the 70s that, like, octogenarians were losing the home that they've owned since the end of World War II, but that home is now worth $1.6 million and is not owned by an octogenarian couple. Like, that profile has just changed drastically. Yeah, totally. So it, it saves the rich a lot of money, Prop 13. Um, yeah. And yeah, like you're saying, I mean, we do need to move away from single-family homes. And, like, that's, again, something that the Yimbys um, and the SB827 supporters accurately identify. Like, single-family homes historically have been super exclusionary, um, kind of only accessible to rich white people with a lot of government subsidies, you know, post-Depression, post-World War II. Um, in my, you know, in my ideal future, maybe there wouldn't, nobody would own a home at all and kind of land would be totally decommodified, maybe. Yeah. But, I mean... Uh, until we get fully automated gay space luxury communism, we we can achieve the culture in our lifetime. Uh, but so our, our very last question: uh, we uh, a couple of months ago it came out we have a six point one billion dollar surplus here in California. Uh, I find that kind of silly because we haven't solved all of the problems. Uh, get Governor Brown gives you the budget pen and you can spend that. How would you spend that six billion dollars? I'd build homes. I mean, honestly, six billion dollars still though is like not even does not even come close to cutting the amount of money we should be investing. Um, so yeah, the budget surplus, I don't know why that is there and why we're not spending it on, on the housing crisis, which is like by far the number one crisis right now. At the same time, um, it's a little bit of a red herring, I think, to talk about because we need so much more money than that and we have so much more money on that than that. I mean, California has some of the richest people in the world. Like I said, 58 billionaires in LA alone. In LA alone, there's something like 3,000 individuals with net worths of over $30 million. Like we could, if we just tax $20 million away from all those people, we can raise $75 billion. Like I've done that calculation before, just like on, you know, on my phone. But I also think divesting from police would be huge. I mean, like I said earlier, we spent billions of dollars on police in LA alone. The county is trying to build what, like a $3.5 billion jail expansion. Three of them. Three jails for $3.5 billion, and one of them specifically for the youth because we apparently really need to invest in the youth by locking them up. Yeah, that's absurd. I mean, it's obscene. So there, the money is there. Yeah. Um, don't let anyone ever tell you it's not. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, very much, Jacob. Uh, for uh, more coverage, you can check out knock-la.com. Uh, Jacob, any things that you want to, uh, to uh, rep while you're here? Um, <laughs> I guess just like let's not let our imagination be constrained by this neoliberal hellscape we live in. Like we can house everyone. The government can build housing or can buy land and transfer it to communities for everyone to have decent housing. We don't have to rely on the market to save us. And the market will not save us. Yeah. Like if you if I mean, how naive do you have to be at this point to still think that the capitalist real estate market is actually interested in building housing for everyone instead of 
profits for the people who own the land. Yeah. And so if you want to stop the foxes from guarding the hen house, because they do a terrible job at it, uh, you can visit us at groundgamela.org, or you can head over to CrowdPack and give us a sustaining donation. Anyways, thank you guys very much for listening, and thank you, Jacob, for being here. Let's hold on.